This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Set it right. The medieval philosophers were right. Man is the center of the universe. We stand in the middle of infinity between outer and inner space. No limits with him. I never imagined it could be anything like this. When you would go subatomic. What does that mean? It means that you would enter a quantum realm. What does that mean? It means that you would enter a reality where all concepts of time and space become irrelevant as you shrink for all eternity. Everything that you know. Texture smooth. I've got good footing. No obstructions. Let's check out PSI. Hey there, and welcome back to the Sounds Curious podcast, the podcast for the adventurous listener. We could not be happier to be making good on some promises we made earlier this summer and finally bring you that interview with Professor Isabella Van Elfren. She is the author of the book, uh, the award-winning book, I should add, Gothic Music, The Sounds of the Uncanny, which was published back in 2012 by the University of Wales Press. She is also a professor in the School of Performing and Performance and Screen Studies 
at Kingston University London, where she is also the director of research for those departments. Now, we first met Dr. Van Elfren at several media conferences beginning in the mid-2000s, including one on music and broadcasting, and then several conferences that she organized, including Nostalgia or Perversion, which was a conference on the Gothic, uh, rewriting the Gothic from the Victorian age to the present, and then a second conference in the city of Utrecht, called Uncanny Media, which was really a wonderful interdisciplinary meeting uh, back in the late 2000s, I believe it was 2008, in which we really talked about the spectrality of many different kinds of media. And you'll certainly hear how that has inflected her research. So we're really, really excited. We are beside ourselves with excitement to bring you this episode and this interview. But before we get to that, let's turn our attention to the opening audio. We took the opening audio today from a video essay, and we really encourage all of you to check out the show notes over at BansheeMedia.com, and we will link to this journal and this video. The project is called In Transition. It's a Media Commons cinema journal project. And the journal is the Journal of Videographic Film and Moving Image Studies. Now, normally we wouldn't be bringing up a film and video studies journal here at Sounds Curious, but we want to direct your attention to this because it's a bit of an unusual approach. Now, as you heard in that opening, which is what they call a video essay, this particular one, again, by Kevin L. Ferguson. He's at Queens College at the City University of New York. It was published on June 13th, 2016, and it's called Quantum Haunting. So if you're a fan of the show, you know that we have been long-standing fans of hauntology or the concept of spectrality when it comes to analyzing sound. That doesn't mean that we're not aware that the rest of the critical studies world only enjoyed a brief romance with Derrida and it's been out of fashion for a while. But spectrality, hauntology, have always been incredibly important for sound because of its unique properties. So if you haven't listened to our episodes on that, go back and give it a listen. And then go over to the Media Commons page, which again, we will link to in our show notes, and check out Quantum Haunting by Kevin L. Ferguson. It's a really wonderfully put together essay that demonstrates his points without actually stating them all the time and sometimes the dissonance between what we see on the screen and what we hear is considerable and it's done very intelligently so go check out the journal go check out this video we really think it's very cool now speaking of really cool projects that we can all get behind
This audio is from the demo for a project that we first learned about here on Sounds Curious through Synthtopia. If you don't know Synthtopia, go check it out. It's a really interesting site. Uh, this particular project is called XOXX Composer, which kind of seems like hugs and kisses, really, shorthand. Uh, the designer of this looks like they're out of Sweden. Axel Bloom has created what he likes to call a music box for the 21st century. It's a sample instrument. And if you watch the video, you'll see that it gives a musician a kind of interesting physical way to interact with their samples and sample materials. We do kind of think it's funny, given that we come out of an era in which when we started making loops, we made them out of pieces of electronic tape and they were literally loops of tape that were taped together at the end. And they ran through the machine and we recorded what happened on that machine and another machine. So it's lovely that this designer is creating instruments to re-physicalize the cycle of beats and to create new ways for performers and composers to interact with their music. This particular model is a music box that allows you to manipulate magnets on a spinning disc. Each magnet triggers another sample. So you have almost unlimited possibilities to create with this. Now, of course, I draw your attention to it when it is not yet available, but coming in the future, this particular sound sample instrument, and indeed a whole wave of instruments that are allowing us to re-physicalize sound, and our interactions with sound in the digital era are of great interest to us here at Banshee Media, and certainly at the Sounds Curious podcast. So we will leave the news there for the week and turn now to the interview we did a couple weeks back with Dr. Isabella Van Alfren on Gothic music, the Gothic subculture, the persistence of the dark side, what Saul Williams would call the dark side that the light cannot hide. It was a great conversation, so stick around. get to start at a really different place from when we first tried to do this interview because our technical failures last time actually necessitated 
a moment and we had already introduced the topic of gothic music so I kind of jumped on it and ran with it obviously with your book so at least now people who listen to that show understand the sonic dimensions of the uncanny so Mm -hmm. we do get to start in a really different place which I think should be the story of how this book came into being um well I was asked to write a book about gothic music and I'm sure that the publisher was thinking about the goth scene for this and but I thought if I start with the goth scene I am in fact two centuries too late because if if I want to investigate the gothic dimensions of music I need to start when gothic started so I started to read or reread all these gothic novels from the 18th century and found out that there's a lot of sound in there and that sound has a very specific function in these books and then i thought okay then i need therefore i need to follow the entire history of the gothic and investigate sound in all of it in order to then analyze music in the goth scene to see how one connects to the other so from the books um, I then went to cinema, to gothic cinema, which is also the history of horror cinema. So I started looking at all these early horror films from the early 20th century, um, which are often made on um, as, as film versions of the gothic novels of the 18th and 19th century. So there's a very clear connection there. And then analyzed the sound and music in that. From there, I went on to um, gothic television and from there to gothic video games and of course in all of these various media gothic music and sound do not only have sort of the same function but they also develop because through the media from books to film to television to video games there's a different kind of interaction with whoever reads views or plays and so that really helped me to see how people engage with gothic sound and music and then at the very end, um, I analyzed uh, music in the goth subculture, which, of course, chronologically, video games start after the goth scene starts, right? But I found it really helpful to put that after video games, because what I say in the book is that while in video games you interact with not just the game, but also with the sound and the music, when you're in the goth scene, you actually participate in it. So in a sense, um, goth music in the scene, as opposed to gothic music in literature films and, uh, and video games, um, goth music allows you to be a part of the world and the uncanniness that it evokes. Right, that and, an embodied participation. That's it, exactly. Um, so I've, um, I'm myself... Uh, in the goth subculture so I go to a lot of parties and festivals and of course you dress up and you sip absinthe and you smoke clove cigarettes and you dance and so it means that this whole world that is described in books and made visual in films and tv and interactive in games that whole world becomes actual and real and tangible and because you dance and you smoke and you drink absinthe, you are in that world. Right. And it's not a it's not a consumption 
no. of those identities. It's a, a kind of willingness to be a focal point in their expression. It's an enactment. Yeah. Really, of the of the stories and the worlds. I find your description, I, it's interesting because my second question was going to be how you structure the book because I did find that really compelling and I didn't know this story. So my interpretation of the structure of the book was that you lay out this very precise theoretical landscape and then mm. you walk that theory through these various manifestations. Yes. And then you conclude, in, in essence, by mirroring back, now that we've made this journey, what it all meant. Mm. It's interesting that my theoretical interpretation and how the book actually came to be landed us in the same place. Well, look, of course, um, I, I didn't start writing at the moment I was reading the books or at the moment I was watching the films. I first did all of that research and then thought, okay, so what are the overarching features of Gothic music and of its its sort of uncanny? And so I've, then I set, from having done all that research, I then set up this theoretical framework with four dimensions and then traced that in each of these types and, and media. The fact that it also traces a kind of embodiment from a distant one through literature and the imagination mm. through to the most immersive, physically um, affecting, because of course, part of the embodiment of Gothic subculture is sometimes the the impact that it has on the physical body, the fact that we mm. move differently in Gothic clothing, we stand yep. differently, we express ourselves differently the the embodiment demands a rigorous physicality oh absolutely i mean when you're wearing a corset you can't move as freely absolutely <laughs> not <laughs> or eight inch um, demonia platform boots or well that's it exactly um so that actually sort of it's the 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 costumes actually help you uh enact these gothic narratives as it were well, for me, that's a really interesting subject in terms of the embodiment, because in essence, when I sort of take the trajectory of your book and think about my own embodiment in the scene, that is also the most difficult thing to express to people outside of it, mm -hmm. is that kind of physical surrender that is necessary to in that subculture I mean you submit in the situations that you and I have both been in where we're smoking closed cigarettes and drinking absinthe there's usually also music and we're submitting to dance and we're submitting to each other and um, looked at from the outside it's always a very dismissed part of the gothic subculture oh absolutely yeah. I mean people often seem to think that goths uh, just want to provoke 
because of their outfits um, or that it's political or, you know, or that um, they just, you know, they just want to shock or something. And that is very much not the case. Um, It's in fact the reverse. It's not an externalizing movement. It's internalizing. When you are like literally when I dress up for a party, I open up uh, a certain dimension of myself um, which I enjoy very much. And when I'm at a party, um, I'm not trying to shock anybody because everybody is wearing black and it's it's not about the outside world at all. It's about being in that world and in that moment and in that music. The fact that this particular experience can't be consumed, mm-hmm. I think is what I'm trying to get at. So maybe I should go backwards. I mean, this participation in the gothic subculture which is dismissed because it is seen externally as a kind of Mm. aggressive expression and as Mm. we both know it is much more an internal manifestation that has a lot to do with our culture's desire to sort of instantaneously package and resell these kinds of identities so Here we are, many decades past the birth of the goth movement, still dressing up, still going to these events, still embodying these things. From your perspective as a participant observer, how do how do you think that functions in the larger culture? That's a very interesting question. I've often th- thought about um, just how persistent goth is. Because like you say, it's decades ago yes. now. I mean, the Batcave was open in the very early 1980s, just for three years. Um, you know, it, it, we're nearly 40 years ahead. Yes. Um, and and that scene is still there. You know, if you look at movements like, I don't know, punk or grunge, all of that kind of petered out, didn't it? It went yeah. through a development of, you know, the sort of, as it were, starters and then the hangers on and then it sort of became mainstream and nobody right. was interested anymore. It was subsumed. And, yeah, exactly. And I think goth has never been interested in being underground or mainstream. Exactly. <laughs> and it also has managed to subsume many of those other more transitional phases. Because yeah, punk... Well, I- I don't think it, it goth even had any of those phases, really. And if you look at, you know, if you go to parties now or to festivals, one of the things I love about the scene is that you really literally get people of all ages in the goth scene. It, it starts, you know, you see youngsters there who are in school and, and you see people uh, middle-aged and and elderly, absolutely, you know, and and they're all still there. So there's something in that scene, and I think it is because it is neither underground nor mainstream. It's not interested in those categories. It's just its own movement, its own world, and its own immersion. Um, and that I think that somehow keeps um, uh, attracting people. I think there will always be people who like, you know, that kind of fantasy if you will or that immersion into that sort of other world and I think it becomes really poignant particularly in the face of global warming the desertification of the planet the ways in which that culture 
finds the dark places that persist. Mm -hmm. And I think drawn against a backdrop of the current global climate, Gothic, I think, has re-emerged sort of uh, not so much as a movement, but it's drawn attention. There was just recently an article, I believe it was in The Atlantic, about the persistence of gothic styles in people of all ages that there are Mm. folks who started with the movement in the early 1980s and are still Mm. goths absolutely still find it meaningful still find it relevant well i think one of the reasons for that has to do with um the function of gothic um as a whole has had since its inception in the 18th century um Gothic, of course, started as the backdrop, the shadow side to the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment happened literally light. Okay, so it's all about reason and it's all about, um, uh, uh, as it were, the brain and the things that you can calculate. And all of that was flowering and it was wonderful. But at the same time, on the backside of that, um, irrationality keeps lurking shadows keep sort of hanging out so the 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 shadows for instance of um religious superstition which of course the enlightenment didn't want to deal with um but they're still there because there are always shadow sides to any sort of culture this is how gothic started and that it it kept having that function all through the industrial revolution through which of which it sh- showed the the shadow sides um think about um colonial culture where you know post colonial gothic um was incredibly important in showing you know the ghosts that lurk in uh the colonized territories right that come to haunt us um, and the same happens with all sorts of technology and digital technology that became imbued with sort of a shadow side of, you know, whatever ghosts may lurk in whatever kinds of machines and sort of paranormal uh, activities. And so I think Gothic has that cultural function at large. And I think the goth subculture um, does too. I'm not saying that each and every goth will give you this this specific version of history of Gothic, right? Goths know their Gothic history. They'll have read most of the books. They've seen most of the films. Um, they won't necessarily say, well, I have this and that intellectual stance on Gothic. Um, but they will say, if you ask, well, we think that shadow sides and dark sides are part of life and we don't we do not want to hide that away so yes we we like to be in cemeteries where maybe things are a little bit of a twilight zone where there's a shady zone between life and death right they're not choosing death they're they're choosing that shadow side Right, what's now called the borderlands between mm. realities, sometimes, uh, yeah, exactly. sometimes referred to as high strangeness within mm. yes, exactly various communities. No, and certainly the shadow side of the Enlightenment. If we look at articles about art in the Anthropocene, you know, art in the age of human-made climate change. Mm. The shadow side of the Enlightenment is becoming ever more relevant. Oh, of course.
continuing of goth you mean or of gothic yeah, of goth and and of gothic expression i I, th I would think so i mean i think as 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 long as we're still in modernity um which we still are i mean, I mean post-modernity wasn't a break post-modernism wasn't it wasn't a rupture that 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 that's that doesn't exist. It was a logical result of modernity and of the Enlightenment. Um, and I think so as long as we're still in modernity, as long as the trajectory of the Enlightenment still um, is the guiding line for our Western culture, um, for all that time, Gothic will be there to also point out the shadow sides of that development. Which is a really beautiful way to think about it if your 17-year-old decides to suddenly wear black and go to golf mm. clubs and listen to goth <laughs> music, don't think about this as teenage rebellion. Think about this as embracing a really powerful cultural position. Absolutely. And it is so powerful because it isn't shocking. It isn't anti anything it quite you know the embrace that happens there is quite simply the em the embrace of the dark side which is always part of life so how has your research continued after this i mean you that's a period on a sentence if ever i heard one how are you advancing in this or what um, are you working I on yeah, after uh, Sounds of the Uncanny, I've done a book on um, the goth subculture um, with my colleague Jeffrey Weinstock in Michigan. Um, this book came out last December. It's called Goth Music from Sound to Subculture, um, which focuses specifically on the subculture, as the title says. So it's very much about um, the kind of worlds that come into being at goth parties and festivals. Um, which is very much sort of a follow-up from, from the earlier Gothic book, I guess. Um, and since then, I've, I've moved on uh, to something that kind of kept intriguing me throughout all my Goth and Gothic research, which is um, timbre uh, or tone collar. Um, and so I'm, I'm currently working on a monograph on timbre, um, which is incredibly difficult and frustrating as as a theorist and composer and someone for whom tone color timbre the word we don't even know how to pronounce half the time mm, yeah is well i'm one of, i have no idea anyway no one no, no <laughs> one knows let's face it and everyone pronounces it differently and everyone thinks of it differently and describes it differently and mm. so far we've had synesthesia for timbre you know, we've described it as if it were physical or emotional mm. or all sorts well, it of is things. It is physical and it, and it is emotional. What we've done is we've sort of replaced, because it's obviously timbre is a sonic thing. It's that quality that makes sound warm or eerie or clear um, or grainy. Um, 
but we we can only talk about it in terms of warm or eerie or grainy. So you you, tron- you <laughs> replace it by some kind of adjective that has actually nothing to do with the sonic. Uh, so we say, you know, th- this this soprano, the soprano's upper register is golden, you know, and and that helps you think about what her voice sounds like. But golden is obviously not a sonic quality. It's 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 a, a visual or or, or a metally um, um, quality. So so what I'm trying to do is um, I'm I'm trying in my book precisely to link. I'm one. I'm trying to find a definition that works better. Bless you. Um, Bless you on behalf <laughs> of all of us. Which is extremely difficult. I mean, there are also physical definitions. There are sort of scientific definitions. Um, the most used definition is um, timbre is the difference in tone if two instruments play the same tone. And that difference, so it's not pitch or volume. It's just the difference between two instruments, as it were. So it's described as sonic difference, as it were. And you can measure that uh, and you can uh, measure something like what is called the spectral envelope. So, um, uh, sorry, the timbral envelope, which... Right. Uh, but spectral composers use the analysis of that envelope. So it's yeah, that's part of it. I mean, in in the timbral envelope, you look at when a tone is made, so the articulation of the tone, the way it then develops into its fullness, and then it develops this. this it does the the spectral analysis of the full tone, so that is the, harmon- the harmonics that you can hear while the tone is resonating, and then the timbral envelope consists of the way the tone ends. So you can you can measure all of that, but my problem or my issue with that is that I think timbre is a lot more than just that physical stuff because I think timbre is in fact one of the most, if not the most important aspect of musical aesthetics because it is timbre that draws us into a singer's voice. It is the sound of the voice. It is timbre that is the difference between digital and analog recording. Um, it is timbre that we first listen to. It is also timbre that identifies genres. I mean, if you if you turn on the radio and you hear just some kind of sound and you identify oh, this is distorted guitar and it's screeching voices, you know that this is metal. If you hear a lot of um, reverb and echo, and strange instruments, you know it's goth. Do you see what I mean? Bel canto in opera is an operatic genre that is defined only by tone quality, by the sound of certain singers' voices. And, and those qualities, those, those tone color qualities, are the ones that are extolled, are the ones that make certain singers absolutely legendary. And those are the qualities that, you know, people like Schoenberg and Stockhausen in the 20th century said music is all about this and any composer should invent new timbres, right? And this is where Schoenberg invents this concept of this concept of tone color melody, where he says tone color should make its own melodies. So my problem in all of this, this is all lovely, and I subscribe to all of these views. My problem with it is, okay, so timbre is on the one hand completely physical and you can make a scientific analysis of it. And on the other hand, it is mystical, sublime, un, you know, indescribable. How do these two compete, the materiality and the immateriality of timbre? That's an amazing point because 
it is in essence and building on our earlier discussion you are pointing out one of the shadows of musical culture absolutely yes thank you absolutely <clears throat> yeah it and lurks it also, behind everything it does and and it's it is unsurprising that this came to me while i was doing gothic research because um gothic is defined by timbre um but the problem with gothic timbres is that they are weird and they you can't easily identify them. So it's like I can analyze many, many things about gothic uh, music, but its timbre is still a mystery to me. And, yes. and therefore, I need to get to the bottom of it. No, and those two languages that you point out, the very material, you know, the, the, the science of acoustics and the ability to analyze using technology, the very complex waveforms of individual instrumental sounds and even just sounds more generally. I mean, going back to musique concrète and this refocusing mm -hmm. in Western music onto sound. I think of Varese who mm -hmm. repeatedly rejected other metaphors and thought yep. about music timbrally and geometrically yep. in a strange way. So it's funny mm -hmm. how timbre is both so squirrely that it refuses a certain level of definition mm -hmm. and yet is so fundamental to certainly music as you point out since the early 20th century if not oh no the dawn of time yeah yeah that started way earlier i mean you if you look at um um john sebastian bach for instance so we're looking you know at late 17th early 18th century um he uses certain instruments to convey certain emotions certain theological themes so for instance he'll always use um viola da gamba when it's when he's writing about grief um because it has such a grave sound it has such a sad sound he'll always use oboe d'amore when it's about love of course um he'll use the um recorder when it's about um, heavenly love and about the divine. So, you know, the recognition that timbre, you know, both is both the identity of an instrument and something intangible, something way beyond the material that has been there, yeah, for centuries. This mystical presence. Mm. Wow. Well, that is an enormous undertaking. Yes, <laughs> I regret it often. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but if anyone can handle it, it's you because you have trained yourself well to see the shadows. <laughs> That's, I'll keep that in mind on one of my not so nice days <laughs> when I'm just struggling. Um, thank you. So, as yeah, as someone who has participated in the gothic subculture for a very long time and found it incredibly compelling at many stages of my personal and musical development, it 
it was a delightful read, I have to say. I know that's a strange oh, way to thank put it. You. <laughs> but I felt in a certain way validated because I, for a very long time, you know, you have to fight certainly in academia. I mean, both of us have chosen the life of the scholar, you a little more traditionally than me, certainly. Um, but part of that is being able to reflect on your own practice and being an, a participant observer sometimes can be a dangerous thing when you're inhabiting a subculture that has a lot yes. of stereotypes built yes. around it. There's a certain dismissal that becomes present with that dismissal of embodied knowledge that happens around the gothic subculture and in many ways yeah. yeah the gothic subculture becomes the return of the repressed in the society who are always yeah. you know in a sense fighting to be heard that this is not a rebellion mm -hmm. this is something more ancient yeah and in a strange way, you returning to Tambor as a scholar is in a way returning to the root of a very particular problem that a lot of us have had in theory, in composition, just in general, describing or articulating what we hear on a more fundamental level. So what's the role of you as a listener in this work? Oh, that's where it all starts. That's where all my research always starts. Um, that's very, that's very clear. I, um, I am more primarily a listener than I am a researcher. Um, I'm not a composer. I'm not creative that way. <laughs> um, I sing. I have stage fright, so I don't do it professionally. Um, but, but I'm you a listener. Do it. You are a performer. I perform, but let's not talk about it because <laughs> I just get very nervous. Um, but um, no, I'm a listener be before anything else. And so what happens is I'll be listening to some music that I love and ask myself questions about it. And so this is this is why, and because you know I have a sort of wide musical taste. This is why the first book that I did was on Baroque music from Schütz to Bach, and then the the second and third book books were both about Gothic, and this is just music I am listening to and I ask myself questions about. And now with Tembra, um, it's a more overarching question. It's, it's a larger question that I ask myself about any of my musical experiences. What is it that Tambra does with me? I'll get, the example I always use for this for myself is uh, Maria Callas, who I admire enormously. Um, and her uh, Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, and it always makes me cry. However... Carlos is not a great singer, or was. She was almost always sharp. She, has, she had no connection between her chest voice and her head voice. Um, she used to breathe in all sorts of weird places. Um, I'm, you know, she was not a perfect singer, and yet, if I listen to any other Costa Diva, like by the great stars uh, of, of current opera, like Anna Netrebko or Diana Damrau, um, it's perfect. And especially with Damrao, you know, she's one of my goddesses. 
But her Casta Diva does not make me cry. So what is that? When I recognize that Carlos is not a perfect singer, certainly not as perfect as Damrau is, why does she make me cry? And this has to do with timbre. It is the sound of her voice. And I need to get to the bottom of that because it's driving me crazy. There's a line <laughs> in, in a silver... There's No, there's a line, actually, in a Silver Jew song from the album American Water where he sings, All My Favorite Singers Couldn't Sing. Mm-hmm. And I've often meditated on that because it's true. I'm not drawn to the most perfect singers, technically. Oh, I, sometimes I am. It, it depends on what they're singing. I mean, if, if, if I had to choose between Gallus's and Damrau's Queen of the Night aria, I choose Damrau without any question. Um, but what I'm saying is that it's arbitrary. It's about what their voice sounds like at that particular moment. So I'm not in any way trying to mystify the imperfect singer. I'm not trying to mystify timbre. I'm not trying to mystify uh, or, or even uh, quantify my own musical taste. I am just struck by this, by, by how much timbre means for musical aesthetics. And, and you know, I'm just struck by how important the sound of somebody's voice is, whether this is an opera or anywhere else, for anybody's appreciation of of music. And how fundamentally so Yes, and how yeah, so exactly. So I'm I'm actually trying to be really objective about it. I'm trying to just really figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> how is it possible that something that is so physical that you can measure at the same time is the most mystified quality of music. I don't really believe in mystification. I want to figure out how it works, how that link works and where it is. The overarching point I was just trying to make was that you are tackling huge subjects. Mm. And so your process becomes doubly interesting because it's Mm. a very quotidian process. Yeah. Right. So I'm not trying to highlight the mystical elements by any stretch of the imagination, I'm more fascinated by those moments when we are experiencing something that moves us incredibly. And yet there's a part of us that immediately wants to understand that response. Yeah, or not. I mean, I think one of the great things about aesthetic experiences is that you don't understand. I think that's great. It's great not to understand. Um, and yet, because I am also a researcher, I always ask myself questions. Um, so I, I think, like you said before, I think that the importance is the kind of question you ask. It's, most, it's in a sense the question is always more important than the answer. But um, I, I like this aspect of aesthetics that where you feel you are above and beyond anything on this world, the sort of transcendent experience, which is inherent to musical, to sort of to listening almost. Um, I like that. What I'm interested in is how is it that timbre is so important for exactly that move to the transcendent in, in the aesthetic, 
when timbre in and of itself is so material and so physical because it's just simply my vocal cords and my chest and my head resonance, right? right? Or it's just that violin or that specific guitar pedal. Or for those of us who built our own sounds, you know, we know everything that went into it. Exactly. I mean, timbre is the most fiddly part of, of making music, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's the thing that you want to get absolutely right. What I'm interested in is that how that physical fiddly thing that we work so hard on becomes exactly the vehicle for the transcendent listening experience. How that is the part of music that makes us lose ourselves almost, right? So, and as a researcher, I just really want to know how that happens, where it is, and whether I can develop a toolkit to sort of try and understand it. Especially, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, given the radical shift we've had in listening culture. Mm. Just even over the last few decades, the the omnipresence of a kind of soundtrack, um, th the importance of listening in contemporary culture, mm -hmm. and how we now do it so very much the same, and yet so very differently from how we did it, say, even in the 1970s. Do we? I mean, our, 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 um, the infrastructure is different. We listen, you know, listening has become much more mobile. It's become much more customized. Um, it's become much more part of, um, I guess, consumer culture and daily culture. There is more sound, as it were. But has our listening experience also changed? As a result, I don't know. I think in the listening... 1970s, nobody ever walked out of a concert because it didn't sound like the CD. Right. Does that happen so very often right now? I don't know. I have never seen stats on this. The stats on concert going, I think, have looked pretty bleak for a while. Mm. Um, however, both of us ha have already discussed, both in this show and out of it, the ways in which listening has taken on various roles in our life. I mean, part of being in the Gothic subculture is the listening together. The mm -hmm. participation depends upon your listening together. In my investigations of desert electronic dance music, it is the music that kind of becomes the subculture out there that creates mm -hmm. the vehicle for participation. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about in timbre is a way that each of us as I mean, I'm speaking now as a composer, that each of us who makes music, you're you're looking into that mode of participation, that place where our mm -hmm. emotions really come into play in the creative process. Yeah, absolutely. And where, of course, um, listening uh, is part of the creative process uh, as well. And and this is then when, when you venture on things like deep listening, of course. Yeah. No, and I think listening in many ways has changed. And again, in many ways, it has stayed completely the same. I think in some ways in our society, and I'm just speaking right now, given the summer that we've had in 2016, listening is becoming ever more crucial. And so hearing about your practice, your research practice of asking yourselves questions, I wonder openly what that might look like 
in the broader culture, I'm always looking for ways in which music is influenced mm-hmm. by and influencing mains, you know, wider mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. And I think part of my obsession right now with really listening deeply into a lot of musical subcultures comes from this desire to hear what I haven't been able to hear yet. Mm-hmm. To potentially embody something that I never imagined I would be because digital global forces are such that comprehending difference immediately and forming a functional response has become so crucial. Mm -hmm. And yet that's something that your practice of listening and asking the quote unquote right questions really demonstrates. Yeah, or even asking really silly questions. <laughs> asking questions is is such a crucial thing. And and I agree, listening, you know, is something else than hearing, obviously. And when we ask questions about listening, we are in the process of listening. And and that's a creative process. You have to be in it to win it. <laughs> On that incredibly silly note, I'm going to stop <laughs> recording. <laughs> and we're going to leave it there. Once again, our very big thanks to Dr. Isabella Van Elfren for that far-ranging and incredibly insightful interview. For more details about her work and all the audio we featured in today's show, check out our show notes over at BansheeMedia.com. And we'll check out soon for your next Sounds Curious podcast. Take care. I was walking home through the wampus woods on the haunted trail. Just released after doing a spell in the Gritterton County Jail. When I turned a bend in the trail, I got the worst fright of my life. Most horrid thing I've ever seen, a decomposing corpse of my wife. Chillin' that I love so well. She drowned him in the bathtub 20 years ago. Plunged me into hell. She was hopped up on pills and alcohol, trying to steal the voices in her head. But the voices told her exactly what to do And then our kids were dead
very same. 